Welcome to Minds Banner. I'm Beth. And I'm Eva. And this week I spoke to Dr. Lucy Hone, who's the director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. Before we begin, I just want to take a moment to thank Dr. Lucy Hone for taking time to speak with us about her research and also her own lived experience with grief and loss. Having people with lived experience share their stories and contribute to research really makes a big impact and is very powerful. I am Dr. Lucy Ho, and I am the co-founder and co-director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. And I'm also a senior adjunct fellow at the University of Canterbury here in New Zealand and the creator of Coping With Loss, which is our really popular online program and coaching support group and the author of Resilient Grieving. And I have a TED talk that went viral during yeah. COVID. What inspired you to get into this kind of research? My story does go way back to I was a writer, a journalist when I left university, my undergrad. And if someone was to tell me then that I would have gone on to do postgrad masters and a PhD, honestly, <laughs> I, I just would never have believed them. I, I think I thought I was the least academic person out there, which is interesting because we do so much strength psychology work. And I should have you know, I should have been able to pick up then that actually I am deeply curious. Yeah. And actually I look at it now and think, no, not not at all a coincidence that I am in this work. So where it all started, yeah. So for me, my first, if I trace it right back, yeah. the first piece I ever had published was when I lived in London in the mid-90s. Then I went for 20 years of writing about all sorts of things. But the reality is if I look backwards, I can see that they all had very often had in common this theme of how can we live better lives? You know, what does it actually mean to be really thriving, to be firing on all cylinders, to be psychologically flourishing, which has en ended up being what I did my PhD in. But, but there was quite a story between doing, realizing that and my PhD because in 2008, I got frustrated by the overuse, it seemed to me, of this term resilience. So this is in the GFC, the global financial crisis. Yeah. And, and it's quite funny now, isn't it? Because we're all sick of hearing this yeah. word post in the post-pandemic era. We're all sick of being told that we needed to be resilient. Well, I was sick of it back in 2008. But what that did was send me my curiosity was piqued. I, I remember thinking that we were told that the economy needed to be resilient and nations needed to be resilient. And I remember thinking, just, yeah, does anyone actually know what this word means? And my research, so I thought I would write an article about it for a, a good news weekly here in New Zealand. And in doing the research, I stumbled upon the University of Pennsylvania's Masters in Applied Positive Psychology and discovered that they had been taking their resilience research to the world. You know, they were applying it in, uh, at that time, the Penn Resilience Program, which they were testing it with school students to see if they could become, train them to be more resilient and whether that whether their training would lead to, you know, less depression, anxiety, greater happiness. And so I was curious about that. And so I ended up commuting between the South Island of New Zealand and Philadelphia to do my master's, which was an executive learning program. So you yeah. didn't have to be there all the time. Yeah. And it was an amazing time that when I turned up there in the fall of 2009, they were only one of two academic departments in the world who were really taking wellbeing science and resilience research seriously at that time. Melbourne came very quickly, joined that party. But at the time, there was only two places in the world I could have done my master's, and that was Philadelphia or the University of East London. And frankly, that was even more of a stretch. So I went there. When I arrived, they just picked up the contract to train all the American soldiers in their comprehensive soldier fitness program. 
So for someone like me who is a pracademic, you know, that is that's my sweet spot that I've found since and cultivated since is what really interests me is going over all of the research and then picking out the studies that I think are most relevant to people in their everyday lives and communicating, working out how to communicate them so that they might actually resonate with your audience and might actually be sticky enough to for them to remember to use them. And then there's another layer to, for us to being pracademics is that at the Institute, we trained well over 30,000 people last year. So the extra privileged position that that puts us in is that we get to see what actually lands well with people. And so from that, we have developed, you know, a pretty good insight into resilience training that might actually resonate and might yeah. actually work with you. So so I did, my, I did my master's and then I came back kind of thinking I might study a bit more and but was about to enrol. I think I had just enrolled in my PhD through AUT because, again, there was only one person here in New Zealand, Grant Schofield, who was interested in positive psychology and well-being science. And so I thought I might, I was really testing the waters. I didn't know I was up to PhD study. If it wasn't for Grant being such an open-minded, forward-thinking professor, I don't think many people would have taken me on. Right. You know, I didn't have much knowledge of stats or research. Really. <laughs> anyway, but, but I just sort of enrolled in it. And then the Christchurch earthquakes hit the really big one that killed 195 people on in February 2011, which did really kind of change my life personally and professionally right. forever, but, you know, because I had to live through two years of ongoing stress mm-hmm. and earthquakes, never knowing whether you were going to be safe, you know, whether there was going to be an earthquake tonight. And, and I worked with all sorts of organisations from huge commercial building companies to government agencies to, to do exactly what they've been doing in Philadelphia, to put all that, to kind of repackage the science so that hopefully it might be helpful for people in my hometown as we were, you know, all of us together getting back on our feet. So that I was, I then after that, went back to my PhD studies, which ended up being in flourishing because during the earthquakes, I kept getting calls from companies saying, can you come and help us with our staff? We we think we need some, they didn't even know, you know they didn't even know what they wanted to ask for. They were actually asking for wellbeing and resilience training, but yeah. it was such an unknown concept back then. They literally didn't know how to to vocalize it, to request it. And that really made me think that actually out there in the real world, people don't know what psychological well-being is. They don't know what resilience is. They don't know what, what they need. And so my PhD became, I think it's called measuring well-being, operationalizing, conceptualizing and measuring well-being. You know, what is it? Can we build it? Who's got it effectively? So that I then, I was then pretty close to the end of my PhD studies. You know, probably was, I think I'd published three studies by then. Mm -hmm. And in 2014, one unsuspecting public holiday weekend, our beautiful 12-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident along with her best friend, Ella, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine. And so that ushered in a whole new angle, obviously, to my work, where I suddenly became absolutely fascinated to work out how useful all of this study I'd done and the mm-hmm. training I'd been delivering to other people, you know, how useful is it when you're facing parental bereavement, which is known to be the worst yeah. form of bereavement. So, so it has been a checkered journey, to <laughs> say the least. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always really wanting to emphasise that to people that I ended up doing a PhD, which I never thought I would have done. Yeah. 
I did it in a topic that wasn't even recognised as a field when I did my undergrad. And so I think in our work, in our training, we come across so many young people who worry so much about making all the right choices immediately. And in all of our work, we're trying to make them realise and give them, reassure them that, that, you know, your adult life and a career is an adventure and everything you do adds to the layers of it. You know, you don't really know where it's coming from and where you it will lead you. And, and that is okay. Sometimes scary and a bit of uncertainty, but actually okay. So I guess from the, so the words that came up a lot was yeah, resilience and also flourishing. Yeah. How do we define these so I think yeah we hear these words all the time but yeah and as you said a lot of people don't know what they actually mean but yeah how do we define these and then in defining them how can we study and test them and see how resilient people are if they're flourishing or not what are ways that we can Mm. do this we define well-being as feeling good and functioning well and I want to put it in brackets mm-hmm. most of the time. <laughs> okay. And then, and that comes from Felicia Hupper and Timothy So's work, and also from Corey Key's work. And it means what I like about this definition is that it combines hedonic well being with eudaimonic well being because, yes, you do want to feel good. Mm-hmm you know, much of the time in an ideal world. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel bad sometimes and there's nothing wrong with negative emotions. You know, they are there to teach us. But I like the fact that it also, it's not just about feeling good, which Marty Seligman's initial work was much more about hedonic well-being. It also includes eudaimonic well-being. So it's about how we manage to show up in our daily lives, you know, all of that meaning and purpose and engagement and accomplishments and autonomy and optimism and resilience. And, you know, they're all in there too. So uh, flourishing then is experiencing high levels of well-being and you can measure it in lots of different ways. And actually one of the eventual findings and recommendations of my one of the findings of my PhD was that depending on how you measure it you get very different results as to who is flourishing so unlike physical health where we have metrics like the BMI which however much we don't like them the value of them is that they are internationally recognized And we can all be sure that we're talking about the same thing with psychological health, with flourishing. People are talking about quite different things. And that from a population health perspective is hampering the field's advancement. And it prevents people, policymakers, for instance, from and HR departments, you know, I think, you know, from human resource departments, from taking this work very seriously because it's still too fluffy because we can't even decide amongst ourselves what we're talking about. Yeah. So I think that has, that was one of the conclusions of my PhD is that however, that we need to stop reinventing more models (laughs) and more theory. And it would be really helpful to manage to agree upon a standardized metric. My other issue with flourishing is that what Abby taught me in my daughter's death taught me was that prior to her death, our work, our, our mission is population well-being promotion. And her death taught me that I think we were always trying to reach for more people flourishing. So Marty Seligman has this moonshot goal, he calls it, that we would have 51% of the population flourishing by 2051. And I included that in my PhD. And I think that that had previously, before our daughter's death, provided the impetus for all of our work. You know, that was the end goal, to get more people flourishing. But actually, 
what her death taught me was that sometimes you can't be flourishing and it wouldn't be appropriate to be flourishing. And so if I'd used any of the sort of most widely validated and reliable metrics to measure my own well-being in the two or three years after she died, I wouldn't have been categorized as flourishing. I was hugely high on eudaimonic well-being. You know, boy, I had meaning in spades. I knew the importance of relationships. I had a very sure purpose in life. I had autonomy. But was I high in positive emotions? Well, guess what? No. And nor would it have been appropriate for me to be so. And so there's just some new research now where they are looking at um, struggle and flourishing, which I think is a really important advancement in the field. So in terms of resilience, we, in our practical work, when we are training people, we would say to them, so if well-being is mainly feeling good and functioning well, resilience is about the ways of thinking, acting and being and the environments that enable you to either continue to feel good and function well or get back to feeling good and functioning well. So we're always pains to point out that, in fact, there's a beautiful quote from Michael Ungar. He says, resilience is as much about what we have our individual and collective resources as what we think our mindset. And so we do piggyback on his work, Michael Unger, Anne Marston's work, Dennis Charney, Pete Southwick's work, Karen Rivich, Andrew Chate's work, Ty Abrashi, Jane Bellingham and Cruz. So we really like to, in our hands at the Institute and in our practical work such as the Coping with Loss program, we are very clear that resilience is about, you know, comes from within you, the ways of thinking and acting that you choose to do in the micro moments of your day and life. But it's also resilience is between us. You know, it is, we, it's so important to acknowledge that, we can only be as resilient as the pool that we swim in enables us to be. You know, if you are constantly discriminated against, if you are living at levels of poverty or abuse, if, you know, you are culturally discriminated against, no amount of resilience training is going to really help. And I, I think we've seen... And we are seeing quite a lot of irresponsible resilience training that just says to people nowadays, you know, it's all up to you. You you are completely accountable. Well, there are things that you can do, but we absolutely need to understand that resilience is about me, we and us. You know, it's at all of those different levels. And so we do take a systems based approach to resilience promotion as well. Well, one of the people that Lucy was speaking about was Dr. Martin Seligman, and that's a psychologist who is at UPenn. And what he developed was this model of learned helplessness. What he did was this study in animals. So there's two animal groups and they're both, I mean, it's not very nice, they're both getting shocks. <laughs> There's one animal group that gets shocks and they can do an action to stop the shock. So they can they get the shock and then they can press a lever or something like this and the shock stops. And then in the other group, they just get the shocks and their actions don't change whether this stops or not. And they make sure that both groups overall get the same amount of shocks. And then the next day, they get the animals to solve another task So they have to escape from a maze or something. And the group of animals that could stop the shocks are able to escape the maze. But whereas the group of animals that 
didn't have control over the shocks, just give up. Even though they're now in an environment that they do have control over, they still behave as if they don't. So it's this learned helplessness. So this relates back to if people grow up in volatile environments where they don't have much control for whatever reason, you can have this learned helplessness. So when you're in different situations that you do have control over, you still act in the way as if you you can't get yourself out of it or you can't control the environment around you. Would we say that resilience is kind of the opposite of that? Or can we teach someone who has this learned helplessness to become resilient? One of the big things about learned helplessness is this not feeling control. And I think one of the things that Lucy also mentions is resilience is feeling that you have this control. And one of the questions that she says, is this helping or harming you? And then you make a decision and then you can change your behavior. So I don't know if resilience is necessarily the direct opposite, but I think that there is probably something to having this control. And if you are resilient, you would feel that. But I don't think if you're, well, I don't know, but I don't think if you're super resilient, it means that you could be in this environment where you are having the shocks that you didn't control and overcome the learned helplessness. I think the learned helplessness you will you will get regardless because of what you've experienced and it's more how you can what you can do after to try and overcome that i think that's also something that lucy said in that depending on the environment that you're in like if someone is in an abusive situation yeah. that no amount of resilience is going to help that and i thought it was it was really nice to hear that from someone who does have more of a background in psychology like we do, that it's not just about the individual and that we have to think of ourselves as as situated in our environments. When she specifically talked about the ecological model, which I think might have started in children, but basically looks at these different levels of, of a person's influence or like the influence that they're environments can have on them. There's these different levels and that all of those levels have to work together to be able to have someone be resilient. And that, you know, it's kind of irresponsible almost to tell someone who's in a really terrible situation that they just need to buck up and be resilient because that's not possible. And I also really liked that she emphasized how important it is to not have perfect well-being all the time because that actually doesn't doesn't make sense. It also kind of reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of old concept in social psychology, which I think people don't necessarily agree with completely anymore. But the idea is that there are different levels of needs that we have to fulfill as humans. And the first is just like basic kind of safety needs, like shelter and food and stuff like that, like just survival. But then to be truly happy, we have to reach these higher levels of striving for goals and finding meaning. So it's a little bit like even though people so one of the reasons that people don't agree with this hierarchy of needs anymore is that Maslow said that you had to fill them up one by one mm-hmm. so only once you had basic safety could you strive for the next level but really people kind of mix up when they want to find need to belong for example which is I think lower in the hierarchy than self-actualization which is something more like chasing your career and chasing other types of goals and people in reality actually strive for all of those things all at once but I think with this split between hedonic versus eudaimonic well-being there is kind of that same split of you need to have that happiness in the moment and that pleasure in the moment, as well as having those types of goals. But obviously those things can be separate. And Lucy herself was saying that, you know, after the death of her daughter, she had a lot of that eudaimonic purpose, which maybe kept her going, but not a lot of that hedonic pleasure. So I thought that was, that was interesting and also kind of a knock against the old theories (laughs) like Maslow. Another thing I thought was interesting is what resilience looks like so I think traditionally we do think it means I'm super tough and can overcome anything and I'll just be fine no matter what comes my way so it was nice to have this image of resilience no it at times it is being overcome with sadness and you know and it's this balance it's not just going through life being (laughs) fine all the time and I think that that's 
a more realistic way of considering how we can be resilient. And just, I thought it makes more sense. And I thought it was interesting because the things I've read or come across before haven't really addressed that. It is this kind of, you know, people can cope with everything and it doesn't normally accept that, yeah, this overall state of resilience can be filled with moments of sadness or moments when you're not coping and that's okay. I thought it was interesting how also she talked about the fact that she wanted to look at kind of the relationship between struggling and flourishing Mm -hmm. because I think intuitively and kind of in folk psych, we maybe feel like people who have been through a lot tend to be the ones that are, are happier maybe. And maybe that's just like a bias in what we're paying attention to because it's like, you know, you'll hear like, oh, that person has been through so much, but they're still so happy. And like, look at them, them going through their lives so happy. But I think there might be something to that, that in the struggle, maybe then it's also easier to focus on good things Mm -hmm. when they do come to you. Maybe that's something that then allows you to feel more gratitude, even if you're not explicitly trying to practice those things. But just because you've, you've been in that situation where things are, you know, going going really badly and you understand what it is to really suffer that then you have more appreciation for the good in your life. So you're kind of practicing that gratitude because you have been through so much negativity. What are some of the ways that we can improve our resilience? And then I guess then also what are some in ways we can improve I mean, just say we have a company or we run a school, to an environment that promotes resilience. What are the two ways the individuals can do and the group can do? So it is possible to promote resilience and essential to promote resilience at the individual, the team and the organisational and system level. So think of Bromfram Brenner's ecological model and it absolutely is essential that people consider all what they can do across all of these levels whether even as an individual I in our training we get people to consider what are the ways of thinking and acting that help or harm their quests to get through whatever it is that is navigating they're navigating right now. So that's the sort of first level is, you know, to grow your self-awareness around your current ways of thinking and acting and how they are helping or harming you. Are they serving you well? So as well as self-awareness, we then encourage people to build their self-control and self, you know, self-regulation and self-compassion. So we focus our attention on those three things at the individual level. So to give you an example, one of the strategies, these are the strategies, actually, this is very much my TED Talk territory of what you can do for yourself. And that is to do things like get really tuned into where you are focusing your attention. And that can be as simple as checking in well after abby died i did this obviously a lot because i was really aware of the importance of this this was a strategy that i lent really hard on and so i would just check in with myself by asking is what you're doing right now or what you're thinking right now helping or harming you in your quest to get through today this hour this week but people when in our training, we use that same strategy to say, is the way you're thinking helping or harming you in your quest to get that promotion, finish that academic paper that you're writing up, to stay friends with this person, maintain your relationship with your really pesky teenager that's been driving you nuts and you've now been in lockdown with for 100 days, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. So, that's the kind of individual level. And we also lean really into Kristin Neff's work around self-compassion and the negativity bias goes in there. So, you know, getting people to just watch out from when they are being sucked into the negativity bias Mm -hmm. and explaining to them and, and growing their understanding of 
pragmatic optimism. So that's sort of what you can do as an individual. But then we always say to them that every single time they show interest in a colleague's weekend Mm -hmm. or their culture, asks about, ask them that question of, you know, how are you? No, really, how are you really? (laughs) You know, what's going on for you at the moment? Every time you build psychological safety and curiosity and acceptance and belonging and equity and inclusion in your team, you are building community and team resilience. So at that level, I love the fact that we can all build our own resilience by building our self-awareness. But I love even more that we have this opportunity to build other people's capacity for resilience. And we can do that every day in really small ways by just tuning into them, giving them a bit more time, adding a sentence to an email. And Paula Davis in Chicago, she's based, she wrote beating burnout with your team or beating burnout for teams, it might be called. And and she in there has this thing called tiny noticeable things. And I love her TNTs. They're all those little ways that we can bring into our everyday life that will prevent burnout and help people be more resilient. And things like, you know, I think the first one is say thank you probably way more than you already are. No, that's great. And I think everyone... I can understand how when you're in these different environments, you definitely feel like you can cope with more. So if you if you show up to work and you feel like you're supported in the team, you definitely feel like you can get through more, not just at work, but through your, I don't know, other things going on in your life as well. I think everyone can definitely relate to that feeling. Yeah. And we didn't talk about the, the structural aspect. You know, in our role, it is really important for us to advocate for resilience and well-being to be placed at the core of everything we do, all human experiences. So we have worked very closely with the Ministry of Education here over the last four or five years now, particularly in the Canterbury region where I live, because we went through those earthquakes. And it's so interesting, Beth, that the earthquake experience made this region much more open to transformational change. Mm. And so they became much more interested in well-being and resilience far faster than the rest of the country. Right. And so we've run, we've done exceptional, exciting new programs down here where we've, for instance, run communities of practice for all schools. In 2017, I think we started this. So we invited every secondary school to join a community of practice around wellbeing promotion across the citywide here. And we had all 33 secondary schools come along to this, join in on this community of practice. And in that, the sort of way we can make a difference at the structural level is that we insisted they bring in a member of their senior leadership team who actually had some leverage to make change. And then in the second year, we realized that possibly we should ask students because that was a complete oversight. And, And what I love about that work is I love, and I was frustrated by this, stealthy, slow pace of it. But the reality is to make whole system change, you know, takes a decade. Anybody who really understands change dynamics knows that. And so we would gather them all together. And it wasn't like we would do a day of resilience training. We'd actually talk to them about their whole school system and where they could make change. And it lent on one of the principles of reciprocity from the Mari world. It's called Akko, where you are learning as much from them as they are from you. And so it has been extraordinary working here over the last five or six years because of this 
realization of the importance of placing well-being and resilience at the core of the education system. And we haven't called it positive education. We don't call it any of that. We call it haora because that is what, that's the Tereo Māori word for well-being. And doing it in culturally responsive, inclusive ways that will make change over time. But, you know, you have to be prepared to go the long haul. Hearing all this, it's definitely very exciting. And being in a university system and seeing, I don't know, so I've been TAing and seeing the experience of the students from the pandemic and, and all their mental health. And I, you know, these things you think, well, how can we make these environments and communities where people feel supported and okay? And the other thing with all these things you're speaking of, it also it's in the best interest of these organizations because if people are in these states, they're going to, be more productive they're going to have better ideas be yeah. more creative so yeah i mean and more and more than anything else they'll want to show yeah, up they'll want to be as the great resignation shows yeah. if you don't foster a culture of psychological safety belonging diversity equity inclusion where people really want to come to work then guess what yeah. they won't yeah. <laughs> they will resign <laughs> they will be sick they will stay at home yeah. so it, I think the pandemic has been amazing for our work in, in a good way, in some ways, in that people really get the importance of resilience and the, the negative outcomes of having non-resilient workforces and systems. Yeah. But on the downside, there is a downside that I think the pandemic has given us a certain amount of resilience fatigue yeah. where people understandably are sick of being told that they need to be resilient without being given the how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is something we are coming up against a lot with workplaces in that we pushed back when we speak to clients who want us to come and run resilience training and they're not prepared to change anything within the system and they don't acknowledge that they have aspects of their culture that is potentially toxic or just the antithesis of well-being and resilience. So it's we are really determined in all of our work to make sure that if we're working with an organization, they have to be looking at resilience across the entire system, you know, to know how they can support their staff to be more resilient. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it is that everything's up for grabs. You can change the entire way that we work um, and play. You know, so humans are incredibly agile. Systems can even be changed. I've worked with accountants globally in the last couple of years who have told me that they've even done audits remotely, which they never thought they could do. So, you know, change is possible. You've just got to want it enough yeah. so another thing I wanted to ask so you were speaking about the the loss of your daughter and, and I and I did watch your TED talk and that's how I came across your work and I was very moved and inspired by that as I'm sure you get a lot of feedback on that TED talk mm-hmm. especially during the pandemic um, so I was wondering what is the balance between practicing resilience but then also allowing to feel grief and loss when do you just give your give yourself into I guess that emotion to to feel that and when do you make these decisions to do these other practices so I think that that is such a good question because and 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 it's an interesting question to ask me because literally this is I I honestly wonder if there's anybody in the world who thinks more about this than (laughs) me you know from a personal perspective and a professional perspective I said to you that well-being is the kind of the approximate goal of life is feeling good and functioning well as much as you can today in our hands when you're grieving what we are aiming for is to help people mainly function, do as best as they can, given what they are going through. So in actual reality terms, that it means it looks very messy. It can be, you know, crying, lying on the couch, nothing wrong with any of that, mm-hmm. but that you feel like you are able to mainly functioning was always my goal so that you, you that you're not going you're not deteriorating 
but that you are managing to have an approximate, rough approximation of a sort of normal life and then being really kind to yourself, knowing that you can be absolutely fine one minute and then you can have what we call a grief ambush mm-hmm. the next minute and be completely hijacked by your grief. And that's where the self-compassion then comes in to say, this is normal. I'm struggling, suffering right now. Everybody who's grieving feels like this. This is completely normal. And I probably either need to reach for my sunglasses and cover my eyes because I'm in the supermarket and I'm feeling embarrassed. I I know I shouldn't be feeling embarrassed. I know I shouldn't be judgmental, but for some reason I am. So to, you know, be kind to yourself, work out what you need to do just to get through that moment. Do you need to get back to the car and sob in the car? Do you actually just need to just breathe for a moment? Maybe name it to tame it is another one of those classic strategies to assist and support emotional regulation. What do you need to do to get through that moment? And then realize with some knowledge from our training, we always emphasize the fact that even these negative emotions, we're scared of them, but they don't last that long. So, you know, very often you can find yourself being completely ambushed by grief but 30 seconds later, that, you know, wave has passed through. So in our hands, I have this term resilient grieving, which really I invented for created really from an academic standpoint to say that this is what I'm doing here is taking the field of resilience and the context of grief and I'm putting them together. My One of my concerns is that people never think that I'm saying come on, harden up, (laughs) grieving, but let's just be resilient because being resilient involves, yeah, lying on the floor and beating your fists and not getting out of bed on certain days and going with the best you can manage at the time. So I have honestly had, so Abby's been, Abby's died eight years ago now and I was probably only last year where I stood on, was about to get on a stage in front of a whole room of teachers one day and I was co-facilitating with one of my colleagues, Greg. And I had already said to him in the morning, I'm really feeling fragile at the moment. Don't really know why, but I'm just not feeling great. Can you you help me and support me and just look out for me? And then I was about, I had done a bit of presenting in the morning and I was about to in the afternoon and I just said to him, I actually can't, I can't. I'm just feeling too weepy. And he was like, no problem. You know, I've got this. And then we did the kind of Q&A bit together at the end. And the point of all this, of this is I've A, communicated my needs to him at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he knows me well enough to know that he doesn't have to worry that I've got prolonged grief disorder, that I am mainly functioning. I'm just having a bad moment. And he's right, ready to, you know, step in. Yeah. And even if he didn't know any of my material, which he happened to know quite a lot of, he would have just busted something else out. And that's okay, because that's what we would call real-time resilience in practice, you know. And I guess that also goes back to having your teams have this group kind of resilience. So when you're in a a place where maybe you can't do something, that the team can step up and, and support you. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it is so. It, it's interesting that I'm because lots of your listeners do have a, sort of a grasp of some of this science. This is why I find it fascinating to be able to say to them. So it, it does kind of come back to self awareness, self compassion, and self regulation. Those those three bodies of scientific literature are what we are digging into here. Really, you can get people to think to understand that the way they choose to think and act internally and externally, you know, with others as well, really does have an bearing on their lived experience. And you can introduce this idea that in order to do that better for themselves, they probably need to build their self-awareness. It starts with working out what helps you and what harms you. And that question of, of encouraging people to say is what I'm doing or feeling, or the way I'm behaving, helping or harming me in my quest to get through this, has that's the thing I get most feedback. I get endless correspondence on it. I get from people that they find that a really good way of putting themselves in the driver's seat and adding a bit of self-regulation. It combines that self-awareness and self-regulation. And then it also combines the self-compassion bit. It's like, you know, 
is scrolling through Instagram or watching another Netflix show past midnight when I've got to get up in the morning. All of that bedtime procrastination, is that helping or harming me in my bid to be, you know, to nail this presentation or be the best I can be in the morning? It's a pretty simple device and it combines all of those things, self-compassion, self-awareness and self-control, you know, or should I put my phone away and just go to bed? Yeah. No, I remember after watching your TED talk and then during the pandemic, I kept being like, is this helping or harming me with all? Because, you know, Melbourne was in the biggest lockdown in the world and was a mess. (laughs) And we, you know, had the curfew and all these different things. So your day-to-day activities could get not they definitely were harming you. And I remember always checking with that question and I found that extremely powerful. And I remember also my mum, when I was complaining to her, she would be like, Beth, is this helping or harming you? (laughs) And and when she said that, I'm curious, Beth, was that annoying? No, it was actually, it was nice because it wasn't her telling Mm. me what to do. It was a more of a check-in. And I think that's, yeah. And isn't that interesting? Because we often hear that, Beth, that people say what they love about it most is it also gives them a sense of confidence and self-belief that actually they do know within them what is right for them, which is great because you're building people's agency. Yeah, exactly. And you feel like you have that control. Yeah. um, If someone else says it to you, they're not preaching. They're, They're saying, you remember you're in the driver's seat here. So I I like the fact that it builds agency and agency for resilience is absolutely vital. And usually at those times where you you need to be resilient, you feel like you don't have any agency. So during the pandemic, you really feel like everything is out of your control. So to have any moments where you remember there are some things in your control, I feel very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, is there are there resilient genes are some people more resilient than others I know that when you're at UPenn your professors were doing work with soldiers I was wondering are they maybe more resilient and that's why they choose to do this work yeah so I think the the honest answer is that the research is not conclusive and because we know so little about we're we're still learning so much about epigenetics yeah it's kind of impossible for me to say and in truth I haven't looked at the genetic research and resilience for a couple years so I'm not really the person who's completely up to date on the play but what I would say is if you think about the big five personality traits Mm -hmm. some of them are more strongly associated with resilience so if you are someone that's high in agreeableness and high in optimism then actually those those are factors that will enable you to approach the situation with some agency to draw your friends in close when you are going through some kind of adversity but your genes are not your destiny yeah. so you know we are able to train even the most diehard pessimists to capture, notice and question their reflexive negative interpretation of events and question whether that is serving them well. You know, is thinking in this way right now helping or harming me in my quest to get through this? So it is a good example of that in lots of occupations it's really important to be a pessimist you know we don't want our air traffic controllers or accountants or lawyers to be runaway optimists but we also so we want them to be pessimistic in their day jobs but we don't want them to take that home at night and just you know be a naysayer and wrong spot everything so yeah so I think it is a mixture and Dr Denise Quinlan who is my co-founder at the Institute and my long-term collaborator. She always, she describes herself as being a diehard pessimist, you know, a refo- but now she's a reformed pessimist. And sometimes we'll be on Zoom and she'll catch herself and she'll say, oh, I, I didn't really give that situation much opportunity, did I? So, yeah, it is. And, and it's, so it comes back to building that that resilience is available to most people if they're in an environment where it is not quashed. Yeah. It does involve very ordinary processes and Marston calls that ordinary magic. I really like that phrase. You know, it's like ordinary stuff, like asking your friends for help, having some kind of mission, humor, things like that. 
and and they are quite kind of magical. You know, they can, they're very potent. And also the literature shows that actually humans, the most, they're incredibly resilient, the most common response to a wide variety of, of potentially traumatic events is resilience. You know, we have it within us to get through all sorts of terrible, threatening, uncertain, tragic events by using pretty ordinary processes. But I want to add, it doesn't mean they're fun. It doesn't mean you want to. But the pandemic proves this, that humans are incredibly able to just grind it out. And isn't that incredible? So I think it is, you know, really important for us to know that, that we that there isn't a trait, it's not a trait, a fixed trait. Actually, these are, there are certain ways of thinking and acting that are freely available to most of us. And we just have to find what works for us. I think this is where people go wrong. They don't sufficiently personalize it. So, you know, and this is ironic as a scientist, I'm obviously all about finding the things that work for most of the people most of the time. But you then have to personalize the language. Yeah. And as an example for that, you know, we know if we look at all the gra- gratitude literature, that the people who can focus on what's still good in their world are going to going to have a greater capacity for resilience. But personally, for me, I hate the word gratitude. So I, you know, I've got a poster that says accept the good. When they were teaching the US Army, they talked about hunting the good stuff. And actually the most effective gratitude practice, I would never call it that, but the most effective thing that we do as a team is we have a WhatsApp group. And on a Friday afternoon, we all post our kind of wins of the week, the, you know, the highlight of the week or where we've been doing training, what we've been up to. And I look at it all and our whole team contribute to it, you know, randomly, you're allowed to have a Friday off. (laughs) And I look at it and think, wow, it was a really good week. I had no idea we'd managed to achieve so much this week. So that is effectively choosing to focus your attention on the good. Yeah. But the word gratitude doesn't appear anywhere. Yeah. We're not doing a gratitude journal and we're not doing three blessings. So that is an example of how important it is for people to personalize the, to find their own ways to make this science come alive. There are studies that show that chemically and neurally, there's also a lot of benefits to expressing gratitude or however you want to, however we want to call it. For example, when you express gratitude, serotonin goes up, dopamine goes up. So all those kind of good, good chemicals. But also what's really interesting is that when you express gratitude to another person, they also have those same chemical reactions. So it's really positive for you but also positive for the other person and that's why I think it's so powerful to do it is that with another person is that expressing gratitude towards them or just gratitude for things in general in their presence towards them yeah so if I were to say like Beth I'm so grateful for your friendship we're both smiling we're both happy So, you know, we both Beth and I do neuro stuff, but I think we both agree that you have to look at behavioral stuff as well. So these these chemicals are also linked to people then feeling higher levels of motivation and satisfaction. And what's interesting about this is it doesn't have to also be between like some people like me and Beth were really close, but it can also be at work. Right. So this is something that Lucy also talked about within teams and something that they practice where they try to express gratitude or focus on good things within their team, that that can also increase people's satisfaction at work and also leads people to have more positive outcomes in terms of productivity, which I don't love framing everything in productivity, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that this stuff can really, can can be tapped in for so many things and it does have this kind of like domino effect or spillover effect of positivity not just not just in your own space in your own life yeah um, and I thought that was also something cool that Lucy focused on with this idea that we talked about with the ecological model of things spilling out over many many like levels of a person yeah and then going back to be being able to flourish or have resilience and that it needs to be your environment then your workplace, should 
implement these things because if that's, you know, that's you're going to be able to flourish then, you know, not just at work but at home if every day you go somewhere and, and you're supported in, in those ways. I think gratitude also feels hard for us now because you really do have to slow down and mm. stop to reflect. And I think that's a, a lot of a lot of what Lucy was talking about in terms of strategies were things where you do kind of have to put in a little bit of work. And I think with a lot of these things and with <clears throat> resilience in general, and especially with, I think more with like the culture that we have where you're always supposed to keep going and with that that idea that Beth said that she felt like what she was told resilience was, was like, you just keep going no matter what, and you don't let anything get to you. I think what Lucy was saying kind of showed that you're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to be sitting down and reflecting. And gratitude also requires you to sit down and, and actually think about what's good in your life. And I think that's kind of a struggle often for us to see what's directly in front of us. Yeah. Because we're always trying to strive for the next thing. But a lot of what Lucy was saying was also, you know, trying to be present in the moment and focusing on what's happening right now in the moment. So So Ava gave me a gratitude journal actually (laughs) when I wasn't feeling that great. (laughs) And to be honest, I really appreciated the gesture, but I was skeptical on how waking up and writing three things for the day would help. But it, it honestly, it had a really big impact and it wasn't, and they didn't have to be massive things. It could, yeah, just be today I'm going to go to the library and see my friends or something, which is very simple. There's nothing very special about that. That's involved in a lot of my days, but taking that moment to appreciate that. Yeah. I don't really understand why it helped so much, but it, it really did. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think also there's, there's some interesting evidence and I think Lucy might have talked about this as well, that when you practice these kinds of things, you're kind of training your neural circuits Mm. to acknowledge those things more. So that training yourself or that practicing gratitude allows for your neural circuits basically to be ready to engage in that kind of thinking. And as Lucy was talking about, there is this tendency to have a negativity bias, like to to pay more attention to negative things, which, you know, served us when we were like in the Sahara trying to run away from wolves and we're not wolves. Are there wolves in the Sahara? Lions <laughs> to know, you know, that we shouldn't go near that bush because that bush has harmed us in the past, but that doesn't necessarily serve us in the world that we are in now. So you can really kind of retrain your brain if you engage in these types of practices. So I think that's also something interesting about it that even goes down to the kind of neural level. So, so Lucy mentioned that the, the grief model of the five mm-hmm. stages of grief is not something that we really think is how grief works anymore. Yeah. And I think it's just important for, for people to acknowledge those types of things just because, as Beth was saying with resilience, I think it can be damaging to have notions of how things work that are incorrect mm-hmm. because it can really influence how you are engaging with the emotions that you're feeling. So with the five stages of grief, which, okay. So they go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. What's the bargaining? I think bargaining is like, no, God. Right. Right. But so, so one interesting thing actually about the five stages of grief is that originally the, the scientist who conceptualized it, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she actually conceptualized it for people who themselves were receiving a terminal illness diagnosis. Oh, no way. Yeah. So it actually wasn't for grieving at first and it was kind of then adapted for grief. But I think that's interesting because it's kind of like self grief versus grieving others, which maybe there are differences there. But the thing that I think is potentially the most damaging about thinking that this is the right model is that if you've experienced grief, you know that you don't experience it through those five stages. No, it's not. And when someone... It's not a discrete, you know, process where I'm in this one to this one. Things are... I mean, yeah, it's mixed up. It's confusing. Also, you can at moments feel okay and that's okay too. And I think... And, and at moments you can feel okay and all of these things. And I mean, 
there aren't really any processes that we go through that are that simple. I mean, if only <laughs> it would make everything a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing that you don't, that's exactly the, the point that science has found now is that you don't go through those stages one by one. And once you reach acceptance, it's not like yeah, you're done. No. If, if you've ever been in a situation where you experience grief it goes on for the rest of yeah. your life. It just changes forms. And as Lucy said, you know, maybe she, I don't know how many years out she was from, from the death of her daughter when she just felt like one day she couldn't go on stage. Like that stuff happens. And I think it's important to know those things. And if you're going through grief to not feel like what's wrong with yeah. me, like it just adds an additional layer of feeling like something's yeah. not right with you because you're not going through the stages that you're so-called supposed to go through. Yeah. And there is a, a really cool study that was run over the course of like 13 years from the 80s to the 90s where they followed 1,500 people who had lost someone. I think it was they had lost a spouse. And this was at the University of Michigan. And they interviewed those people again and again over the years just to look at the progression of their grief because actually in the Kubler-Ross model, the, the five stages of grief, she didn't actually interview people over the course of time. She just right. interviewed many people who were in different stages, but then linked them in this progression. But in this, this study where they followed people over more than a decade, they didn't find that there were actually stages that people just cycled through right. these emotions and it was a little bit unpredictable when each of them was going to happen, even over the course of a decade. So I think that's just important to note and that there are findings that show that it's not just um, five in a row when you'll be okay. you know, done in a month, wash your hands of it. Yep. So if, if you're going through that, just know that you're, <laughs> you're, you're okay if you're not feeling it by the book. If you lose someone that you love, I mean, you miss them forever. And that feeling and all the intensity might change or something but of, of course the rest of your life you miss that person is there anything new you'd like to share with us any exciting things coming up what, what's what's next mm. i guess <laughs> yeah thank you my most exciting project at the moment is this new community we've created and courses called Coping with Loss, which is directly supporting those who are bereaved. Because we've previously had courses that help the health practitioners, right. but we never had a course that supported my book, Resilient Grieving. And, and that's kind of madness because I get correspondence from people all over the world saying how much the resilient grieving gave them a roadmap and gave them hope. And that is what people really, I, I think I have detected, identified this massive need amongst the bereaved for hope and action, we call it, you know, just they want, they want someone to give them a more hopeful prescription. They want to know that somehow they will get through this devastating loss. And they want to try some tried and tested ways of thinking and acting that will not remove the pain and the misery because they know that that's not possible, but will help kind of marshal their resources so that they are can be confident they're doing everything they possibly can to get themselves, those people they love, whether it's, you know, work colleagues or family members through this loss so that they are managing to grieve and live at the same time. And I spent some time on some of the Facebook bereavement groups at the end of last year and earlier this year, and I was stunned at how miserable they were. And they were just people posting about how miserable they were, how sad they were and how stuck they were. And it really made me realize that there weren't many resources for those people who want to take action. Right. So it's been incredible creating this course because suddenly we've created this supportive community who are also able to help each other out. And, you know, I, I don't know everything about bereavement. I haven't lost a spouse. So that has really made me feel that all of my experience, both professional and personal, 
is being put to good use. And and in truth, Beth, that makes Abby's short life count for something more, you know, that her legacy lives on. And that is a pretty humbling and amazing experience for me. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. (laughs) That's okay, because you don't have to apologise to be crying in front of me, because really, you know, it's just emotions are all good, aren't they? No, thank Um, you so much. And I remember when I watched your TED Talk and I think also being able to talk about these things and being brave enough to do that, I, like, obviously, yeah, really resonates with a lot of people. Thank you. I'm on a mission to change grief. You know, there are no five stages of grief. There's actually so little empirical evidence that supports that model. People don't go through five stages. You don't have to go through all those stages. And I didn't. And But I'm completely normal. You know, most people don't. Grief is as individual as your fingerprint. And so I'm on a mission to give those people who are desperate for to return some control to that awful situation when you lose someone, you feel so helpless. We just want to give them an alternative. So there's no pressure here to be kind of resilient, rah-rah, grieving. That's not what we're talking about. We're just giving people an alternative to say, you know, if you want some hope and action, there are actually, there's a lot of stuff you can do. Come and join our tribe of people who are trying to do that. We thank Dr. Lucy Hone for sharing her story and her research with us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuzo. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. (laughs) 